standing for the reading of God's word. Good morning, church. Excuse me. I was better than this earlier. I don't know what happened, but we'll plow on ahead. If you would, turn in your Bibles or whatever medium you brought to Colossians 1 for our study this morning. Um, In in your bulletin, it's listed Colossians 15 through 20, but I will begin reading in uh, verse 1 so as to set a proper context. I will be reading from the New American Standard, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God the Father. (coughs) We give thanks. To God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven and of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled. Excuse me. I'm going to turn this off for just a second. Try this again, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his might, For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray that you would use it this morning to build up your church. Strengthen your people. Encourage those who are, who are down or who need encouragement. 
And Lord, speak to those who do not yet know you. Um, Open their eyes to see that they might see the Lord Jesus Christ and accept him by faith. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I'm hearing a little bit of ringing in this. Anybody else? Okay. Use this? Okay, we'll go back to that. Okay, the title of our sermon is First Thing, so first let's get the sound worked out. Um, Miss Ann, can you hear me back there? Okay, Bob, Sherry, everything okay? Okay, we're going to go with that. Okay, first things. I always return to this verse, this passage. I'm not one who tries to identify a favorite verse for myself because I think that kind of eliminates other things. You overfocus on one point. But I find myself constantly coming back to Colossians chapter 1, especially verse 17, which we will get to in a little bit. So we've titled this First Things, and first is not first in chronology. I'm not worried about first things in time, although that's part of you know, the definition. I'm thinking of first in importance. I'm thinking ideas that are so central as to be necessary. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Um, in our day and time... I feel that we need a robust theology. Now as always, you know, there is nothing new under the sun, and, uh, and theology is always necessary. Um, but there are elements in the church that downplay that. I've had a, a pastor say to me that people never live up to what it is they know anyway, so we don't need to teach too high. I don't like that. To me, that's a recipe for people staying shallow or becoming more and more shallow because we teach down. And if people don't live up to this, they're not going to live up to this. So we need a robust theology, now and always. Um, Robust does not necessarily mean complicated. Uh, It doesn't mean it has to be so intricate and so vague that we can't understand it without a Ph.D., but it does have to be solid, strong, clear, focused. Able to stand is a good, good idea of robust. So things of first importance. The church has always had its enemies. You know, on the outside, the church has had critics. There have been empires who've been officially anti-Christian. There are philosophies that set themselves up against Christian thought. There are governments. There are other religions, such as Islam, especially in our day. There's a view of government, um, statism, that is uh, the idea that the government somehow can take care of all your needs and no matter what form of the government structure that this, takes, that this shows itself in, just the idea that it can handle everything for you and take care of all your needs. And to that, I would just give a warning. You know, Any government big enough to meet, to meet all your needs is strong enough to take all your rights. And I noticed that Glenn prayed concerning that, even in his prayer. We live in a time when, when rights seem to be getting a little more crowded out. And if you think that doesn't affect your ability or your freedom to worship, you are mistaken. For anything that sets itself up against God is an enemy of God. And that place, that central fact of life is his and does belong to nothing else. But those are enemies without. Those have always been there. The church is still here. You know, they have not succeeded even though times, at times, there has been much violence and conflict. I'm more worried about the enemies within. The enemies within, they come in many forms. I read a book one time called Well-Intentioned Dragons. You know, these are people in the church that mean well, maybe, 
And they come to you with ideas or suggestions, but they're very insistent. And they end up causing division and conflict, but that's, that's one enemy within. But then there's also the wolf in sheep's clothing. There are those who come in, and they look right. They sound right. They have all the Christian language. But they are wolves in sheep's clothing, and they sow seeds of dissension. Um, they're much more subtle in some ways much more difficult to detect and much more difficult to root out. And I'm not sure which one's worse, the enemy's outside or the enemy's inside, but I lean towards number two. In the long term, I think it's the latter of these because it's like a cancer that metastasizes, you know, that takes root and then spreads, and it removes the church from its proper moorings, and it happens before you recognize it because it's so subtle. And in the book of Colossians, this is the danger Paul's dealing with. Um, This is not a time of persecution for those who live in the city of Colossae. This is a time where the gospel has already come. Um, In fact, the the idea of a church in the city of Colossae is a testimony to the power of the gospel because in our day and time, we tend to look at some great preacher. We tend to look at the newest apostle. And so we see the church planted where it had never been, and we think that's because of that man. Well, Paul had probably never been to the city of Colossae. Um, It's possible that he would have passed through it at some point because of its location, but there's no evidence whatsoever that he'd been there or that he had known any of the people of the city face to face. So the fact that the church existed in the city of Colossae is a testimony to the power of God and, and the idea that it's the message that matters because that's God's word, not the messenger. So Paul was probably never there. We find out from the text that the church was planted through the efforts of Epaphras, who probably heard the gospel and became a disciple of Paul's during his Ephesian ministry in the third missionary journey. So the church was planted. It was well begun. It was set up on a, on a pretty good foundation. But now there seems to be some encroaching danger that's hard to identify. It's not some blatant error like we saw in the city of Corinth. Yet there is confusion There are some troubling things being discussed. There are things that sound good at first. And I had a teacher one time tell me it takes a lot of truth to float an error. You know, many, many wrong ideas can be couched in language that makes them sound good. And it's kind of like putting a drop of poison in your tea. (laughs) You know, it goes down, but it's still poison. And that's what's happening in, in, in the city of Colossae. There seem to be elements, as we read through the letter of Greek philosophy that's seeping in, seem to be elements of Eastern religions. There, you know, this is the area of Asia where later on Gnosticism, which was a second century heresy and that the church had to fight, there's, there's some evidence. This is the area where Gnosticism kind of came from and took root, but it's not there yet. However, a lot of these ideas that take root and become a full-blown system later are already there. And Epaphras to his credit, seems to think he's in over his head because he goes back to the man he heard the gospel from and he comes and he tells him that there are some things there that I just can't quite make out. I'm just not sure what to do with. And Paul, who is now sitting in prison in Rome, ponders these things and decides to include the city of Colossae on his uh, mail list. And Paul's response is brilliant. You know, you can only say so much in a letter unless you're going to make a letter 15 pages long. So what Paul does is, is instead of a point-by-point refutation, Paul decides to emphasize first things. 
He says, here are the things of first importance. And that's why in the first chapter of Colossians, we have something that is, that is one of the densest and most important Christological passages we have in the New Testament. If you take Colossians 1 and John 1 and Hebrews 1, you can fill out your theology of Christ. And that's what Paul does here. He, he establishes Christ and teachings about Christ as a plumb line. Now, some of you here are involved in construction, and we don't use plumb lines very much anymore, but it's just the idea that you hang a weight at the bottom of a string so that the string is straight. And then you can build a wall up next to it. And then you can tell if your wall is out, if it's leaning one way, if something's out of place. Um, it's also like the FBI school for counterfeit detectors. I was told many, many years ago, there's so many different forms of counterfeit money that what they do is they put somebody in a room and they hand them a dollar bill, $20 bill, $100 bill, and they tell them, get to know it. Because that way, when a false dollar bill comes across your desk, you'll be able to identify it because it just doesn't match up. It's just like a plumb line. So that's what Paul is doing here. He's going to set up first things. He's going to talk to them about Jesus, and he is going to establish a robust theology, one that can stand, something of first importance. And to do this, obviously we can't do this exhaustively, but we're going to look at three main points because that's the Trinitarian formula for sermons, I'm told. And, and for Frank Robleski's sake, because he looks for structure. I have three points in speaking about Christ. We're going to look at person, position, and purpose. Person, <clears throat> he is fully God. And man, position, he is first, he is central, he is primary, he is necessary, he is what you need, he is preeminent. And then purpose, that is rather God's purpose in Christ, and that is the purpose of reconciliation. So, person, the person of Christ. This is important, and Paul starts here, and Paul includes this for a reason, because every false religion you will come across in our country, in any country, whether it be Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or anything else, they have a deficient view of the person of Christ. And so if somebody fully understands that Christ is God and man and that he is a unique person in all of history, then they have a plumb line that they can compare false teaching to. So every, every other religion makes a fatal error in this way. So the person of Christ, he is God. He is also man, but here the deity of Christ is being emphasized. Um, there's another reason for that. The, the deity of Christ is being emphasized. Um, one of the early errors, one of the errors in the early church also had to do with the person of Christ. They debated how could God become man? And there was a school of thought that said, okay, he was man, simply empowered by the Spirit. And then there was another school of thought that said that he was fully God, but he only appeared to be man. Okay. In fact, they went so far as to say when Jesus walked along the shores of the Sea of Galilee with his disciples that he did not leave footsteps. He didn't leave footprints. He was not truly man. And Paul is saying all these things are wrong, but we can't deal with every issue, so we're just going to talk about Christ and the fact that he is God and man. We see this in a few places in our verses 15 through 20. It is not explicit. He does not just simply say Christ is God. But he does say it in so many words. In verse 15, we see this word image. Um, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, an image can bring up many pictures in your mind. You're, many of you are familiar with the story in the book of Daniel of the King Nebuchadnezzar, who made an image, a statue of himself, and he set it up on the plains. 
thing was you know, 90 some odd feet tall. And he told all the people of his kingdom, when you hear the music, bow down and worship this image. Now, did Nebuchadnezzar care that they bowed down to worship the image? Or did he want them to bow down and worship the image? Because in worshiping that, they were worshiping Nebuchadnezzar. They were worshiping the king who set the image up, the one made in his image. Okay, He wanted their worship. So when you hear the music, bow down. Yet, there is a very, there's a distinction here because no matter what Nebuchadnezzar would say or do, or no matter how he commanded his people to act, he was not his image. The image existed outside of Nebuchadnezzar. It was something that represented him, but it was not him. And like that, in a sense, we, the people of God, the people that God has created, are also made in the image of God. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see this where he says, let us make man in our image. But still, again, we are made in the image of God. We don't exist as the image of God. Somehow, we show forth or reflect God's image, but we are not. Here, it very, clear, very clearly says, He is. God's Son is the image of God. There is an equality here. There is an equation. One equals the other. There is an identity. He's the image of the invisible God. Now, for time's sake, I'm not going back to John 1, but if you want to look those up yourself, John 1, verses 1, 14, and 18 talks about how the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word, the word is God. He was with God in the beginning. He has made God known. And in verse 18, it says that the only begotten God has explained God, that He is God in the flesh. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and especially Verse 3, it says that he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So in all ways, when we talk about Christ being the image of God, he is God himself. But that's not the only place Paul mentions the deity of Christ here. He says in verse 16 that he is both the agent and the goal of creation, for by him all things were created. There is another formula here. In Genesis 1.1, it says what? In the beginning, God created and here in Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created, speaking of the Son. So God is a creator God, and the fact that Christ was involved in creation means that Christ is God. And somehow, and this is a little bit harder for me to put my mind around, to be honest, but somehow he is also the goal of creation. It says that all things were created through him and all things created for him. And this tells us that there is an end goal. And somehow all of this serves the purpose of pointing to Christ and of serving God's purposes. So he is the image of God and he is the agent and goal of creation. And then number three, I love this one. This one just always strikes me. In verse 19, there's this word fullness. Now, in the NAS, it says that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. In the ESV, which is what we have in our pews, it just says that it was the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in him. So whether, I think it's fair to say the Father, because when you go back up through verses 12, 13, and 14, the Father is the one who is the agent who has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his Son. This is the Father acting on behalf of his people. And since the fullness of deity is here being personified in some way, it's fair to say that it was the Father's pleasure for the fullness of deity to dwell in him. But what is really important whether you go with the implication that the Father is involved or whether it's the fullness of deity itself, what's really important here is this word or term, fullness. By the way, the word deity is not in the Scripture there either, let alone Father. But the word fullness is, and it's sufficient by itself just in that word. 
There was, in the ancient Near East, flowing from Greek philosophy and later it becomes part of Gnosticism in general, this whole idea that there's a separation in the world or in the, all the universe of the spiritual and the physical. And philosophically, they came to view the spiritual as purely good and the physical is not. And so these two could not come into contact with one another. It just could not be done. But you can't live that way because they believe that the spiritual and the physical, there are interactions. It's, it's an entire creation. So they came up with this theory where there are all these different levels. They called them emanations or other things. They sometimes referred to them as simply the attributes of God. Whereas every time you take a step down, you are somehow a little bit less than full deity. And they take another step down, a little less than full deity. So that as you went down, and some of those philosophies, by the way, went as many as 13 levels. I mean, it's just a ridiculous digression of idea. But in every level, you're, you're somehow less divine. So that when you get down here to this lowest level, you're just a little spark of the divine left in you, and it's okay to come in contact with the physical and the natural. Okay, now Paul, th- this, word, this word in the Greek is pleroma. It refers to either full divinity, full deity that lives up here, or the entire structure. Because in all these things, the attributes of God are being represented. So if you take it all and you put it together, that's fullness of deity. And Paul is very clearly saying that the fullness of deity dwells in Christ here. So though not explicitly stated, the language Paul uses would have been perfectly understood by the Colossians that Christ is not just a normal person. Christ is God. He is fully divine. The totality of deity dwells in Christ. That word dwells is significant as well because this word for dwell doesn't mean comes to visit for a while, but to take up permanent habitation so that Christ is God all of the time. He was not simply a man who was walking along, adopted or empowered by the Spirit for ministry, but he himself was fully divine at all times. So Christ is God. Now, if you do turn the page briefly to just chapter 2, verse 9, it says, For in him, speaking of Christ again, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So Christ is not only God, but he is God and man. And that's important, but the emphasis of chapter 1 is on the deity of Christ, because that is where the error was creeping in. So that's the person of Christ. Christ is God. Number 2, we talk about the position of Christ. Keep in mind, now when I'm talking about position, I'm not just talking about chronology, although we can certainly say Christ came first because Christ was in the beginning with God. But I'm thinking more of the idea of the position of centrality, of being invaluable, of being necessary, of being preeminent, of being just central, first, We find this in our passage as well. Again, back in verse 15, we see that after Paul tells us he's the image of the invisible God, we see that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, this idea of firstborn can include things such as chronology and position. And in this text, it seems clear that the position of Christ is being emphasized. Yes, he came first. Yes, he existed before creation because he was in the beginning with God. But it's the position and this is, a, this is a biblical theme. This is a position of blessing, a position of authority. In the Old Testament, the firstborn child got a double inheritance. 
when the, when the patriarch passed away, he became the head of the household. So this is, this is a position of prestige, of authority, and it is not necessarily firstborn in time. For those of you who've been coming on Sunday evenings, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and we have recently studied parts of the life of Jacob. Now, Jacob had a brother named Esau, and Esau was the firstborn. But through trickery and deception and manipulation, Jacob received the birthright, and then later, manipulating his father, received the blessing of the firstborn. So here the secondborn became the firstborn and became the vehicle through which God was going to mediate his blessings through the world, to the world. So Jacob had the rights and the privileges and the position of the firstborn. And this goes to show us that, that the firstborn title could be appointed. It was not just by birth. And so when Paul uses this idea of firstborn here, he is speaking of its position. Jacob was not the only one. Judah, later in Genesis 39, when Jacob is an older man and he's getting ready to die and he prophesies about his descendants, he says that Judah shall be ruler in Israel. And Judah was actually number four of Jacob's sons, not the firstborn. Jacob had considered the others disqualified due to various episodes in their lives together. So it could be appointed Judah, Jacob, uh, David was not the firstborn, and yet David was anointed king. Solomon was not David's firstborn, and yet Solomon was appointed king. The idea of firstborn here stands on a firm foundation that is position, not chronology. So this verse cannot be used to say that Christ was somehow created being. He can be used to say he was preexistent. He existed before creation, but he was firstborn in his position of authority and power. Um, This is consistent through the text. In verse 16, we see that by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. So here he is over all created things, whether they be physical, spiritual, whether they're identified as powers, authorities, thrones, dominions, rulers. Christ is over all created things. He is also... If you drop down to verse 18, over all recreated things. In verse 18, he begins to speak of the church. And Paul says that Christ is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So he is over all creation and over all recreation. Paul uses this, this metaphor of the body again like he uses in 1 Corinthians 12. There, Paul, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about the body is made up of all these different parts that have to work together so that the body is healthy. Here, though, he's talking about Christ is the head of the body, and again, he's emphasizing position of importance. You know, I have been told that a cockroach can live for seven days without a head. Okay? I don't know if that's true or not, but the church can't live without its head. Okay? Christ is that important. He is first. So he is the head of the body. In verse 17, we see that he is before all things. This language here points to the preexistence of Christ, and since he existed before creation and he himself is the agent of creation, then he himself is over all these things. If we look at all of these things that Paul is putting together on this idea of the centrality of Christ, we can see a summary statement, I believe, in verse 17, the second half. Not only is he before all things in that he is preexistent, but in him... All things hold together. This word for hold together in the old King James was translated as consist. This just simply means that all things are sustained. All things exist in Christ somehow. All things continue 
because he sustains them. All things are somehow tied together into a unified whole because Christ is at the center, because Christ is first. So the person of Christ is that he is God, and the position of Christ is that he is central, he is invaluable, he is necessary, and in him all things hold together. This takes us to number three, and that is the purpose purpose of Christ, or rather God's purpose in Christ, which as I've already said is reconciliation. Now the definition or a working definition of this word reconciliation could be to make friendly again. That's a nice, nice phrase, to make friendly again or to make compatible again. This implies that there's a problem, that things have not been friendly you know, relationship between the creator and his creation has not been compatible or as it was originally intended to be. And that's because of the rebellion of mankind. All things since the fall, both people and creation comprehensively um, are at odds with their creator. Now, as far as the creation is concerned, they're kind of the innocent bystander. Because Romans 8 tells us that the creation was subjected to a curse because of the sin of mankind. But either way, it labors under a curse, awaiting a time when it will also be reconciled to God in its, in its fullness. So this is all tied up. The, the reconciliation of creation is tied up with the reconciliation of God's people to him. We are separated from him. We are at odds with him. We are in rebellion against him in our natural state. And we are hopeless and helpless in this situation. But God... Okay, but God, he didn't leave us there. God looks at the situation and he acts. He does something. In verse 19 and 20, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That's the cross of Christ. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, all things. We see that the offended, God is the offended party in this. And yet he has acted and reconciled the offenders. He has done this. If you look throughout our passages, if you look back up in verse 13, this is God acting, for he rescued us. That's a past tense, by the way. If you look down in verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That's a past tense. If you go further into 21 and 22, especially 22, even though you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, in other words, you were at enmity with God, you were set against him, yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. That's past tense, once again. God has taken the initiative. God has accomplished this reconciliation. And it says that he has reconciled all things to himself. Now, good Calvinist has a problem here. You have to define all things. What does it mean all things are reconciled to God? Well, in our text, first of all, all does mean all, but you have to understand the meaning of all. It says that he wants to, or that he has acted to reconcile all things to himself, and yet later in that verse it says, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So there are all things, all kinds of things on earth and in heaven. Um, but it also speaks of God's people, and that's really what we're concerned about, isn't it? Because the creation is going to be reconciled to God as God's people are reconciled to God. It all hinges on the reconciliation of his people. So does all mean all? In regards to his people, of course not. 
Of course not. You would have to throw the rest of the scriptures out, and especially the teachings of Jesus himself, if you were going to say that all people will be reconciled to God. But all God's people will be reconciled to God. Um, Jesus, when he talks about the end times and he says, in that great judgment day, then the angels will come and Christ will return and set up thrones and there will be a great day of judgment. He says people will be gathered together and they will be separated like the sheep and the goats. And the sheep will be going into eternal blessedness with the Father while the goats will go to eternal damnation. So he is working. He has worked. He has offered his son to reconcile all things to himself. But that means all his people. All his people. And for the people of God, you should take a sense of assurance from this. God has acted. It depends on him. But we have to be careful not to press the scriptures to go further than they do. Now, all this in Christ. As Paul is pointing to Christ, if we were to sum all this up, we would say that Christ is uniquely qualified as the God-man, to be the reconciliation between man and God. Man can live, as a man, he can live and die. He can offer himself as a sacrifice for sins, but as God, he offers a sacrifice that is of infinite value and is absolutely sufficient for the saving of God's people and the restoration of all things in the end. So in the person of Christ is one of infinite value, fully divine and human, Lord over all, qualified to reign, able to sustain, and sufficient as the mediator between God and man. So truly in him, in him, all things hold together. Now if you're the Colossians and you're reading this, you're going to, you know, they had elements, elements seeping into the church that included things like angel worship. Paul is saying you don't need to worship angels because in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells. There were things coming in such as asceticism or the harsh treatment of the body or the denial of certain things to somehow grow closer to God like later monasticism. And Paul is saying rejoice people, the reconciliation has already been accomplished by God. There were things coming in about secret knowledge that somehow would make you a super-Christian so that you wouldn't just be an ordinary run-of-the-mill Christian, but you would be super-Christian. And Paul says, it's got not, it has very little to do with you, and there is nothing more. I'm telling you what is necessary, and that is Christ himself, because he is in the first place. Now, I have an illustration I like to give when I'm dealing with this passage, because in some ways it can come across kind of dense, maybe a little confusing, but picture a wheel. It's that simple, and I don't mean today's fancy wheels where they have no, no core to them. <laughs> Go back to an old-fashioned bike tire with all the spokes that tie into the hub, you know, that central piece. Um, I actually saw a gigantic version of this last spring because my son and I were able to go to London, and you can't see a picture of London anymore without seeing the London Eye gigantic Ferris wheel a few hundred feet high. You know, it used to be you'd go to London and you'd see St. Paul's Cathedral kind of towering over the city. Now you've got a giant Ferris wheel. Probably says something about a culture, doesn't it? Um, there's also one of these in, in Orlando, um, I've been told. Haven't seen it myself. But look at a wheel. And try to realize, if you can, how important the core or the hub of that wheel is. Because all of the forces, all of the strains, all of the stresses and everything, all are held together by that core. And because that core is there, if it's sufficient, that wheel can operate, it can function, it can be useful for things. And it also ties the whole thing together. 
So if you break that wheel down and think about life in all of its intricacies and all of its relationships and all of its issues, whether it be jobs or children or marriages, plot them along that wheel somewhere. And yet, through the core, through the center, it's all held together. And so life kind of works in the ideal situation. And you have to include all things in your wheel. And that includes this life and the next one. And I think that's one place that most people mess up, including Christians. I don't think we consider the life to come as part of life. And by looking at the life to come, it makes a world of difference on the way you view and live this one. I knew a young lady that used to work for us whose father, she grew up with a father who was a traveling evangelist, and she was not impressed, and he was not impressive. A little bit of a prosperity gospel, a little bit of charismatic things, a lot of legalism, and she grew to hate it. And she grew to hate her father. You know, and, and I find that when I'm trying to share the gospel with somebody like that, it's very difficult because somebody says, well, you don't know what happened to me. I'm like, well, you've got a legitimate case. That sounds like a rough upbringing. But even though I can't answer every single specific problem, you have to deal with the idea that there is more to life than just this one. You know, I've heard recently there's this rise in atheism, you see, whether it be online or in the news or whatever else. It's the same thing. They're denying anything beyond the here and the now and what you can see and feel with the senses. And, and life lived like that is truncated. It's small. It's not complete. And no wonder life breaks down because you're not looking at the whole thing. So I just tried to tell this girl, excuses or not, and I'm sorry you have bad feelings and your upbringing was rough, but the fact is there is a life to come. And the Bible tells us it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. And so that makes of first importance what you, how you look at life and the things that you hold to. You have to address that issue. You can't avoid it forever. So, people, for one way or another, don't have the proper thing in this hub, and they don't have the proper view of life because they're only looking at a part of it. And so lives break down. And I'm surrounded by lives that break down. And I wish I could make them see, but I can't. You know, we have a lady in our office right now who's going to have... She's 36 years old, has breast cancer, going to have surgery next week, followed by radiation and who knows what else. She's an unbeliever, doesn't have time for it. As best I know, gives it no consideration. We had a young man that worked for us for three years, fell off a ladder six weeks ago, thought he was okay, went home. Three weeks later, died of internal bleeding in his bedroom, found by his 11-year-old son. Life breaks down. The man was an unbeliever. He didn't think of all of life. You have to. You must. It's important. Any life that does not keep eternity in mind is incomplete. And, and even life here tends to break down, but not always. Not always, right? How many of us have known, have known people who were not believers and did not want the things of God, had no interest in the things of God, and yet their lives look pretty good? You know, that's the subject of Psalm 73 when the psalmist is looking around saying, Lord, I don't get it. I see these rich people growing fat on all their riches. (laughs) I see them enjoying life. There's no struggle there. He says, but then I come into the temple of the Most High and I see their end. And they have neglected the weightier matters, the things of first importance, because they have not considered the life to come. Don't be fooled by what you see. Any life that does not keep eternity in mind is incomplete 
and is headed for trouble, whether it manifests itself in this life or not. And Christian, don't fall into the same trap. Martin Luther used to say, I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day, and I live every day now in light of that one then. And it makes all the world and all the difference in the world. So Christ, if you're going to put something in that hub, something's got to be there. If you're going to put something there, it's got to be sufficient to the task. It's got to be strong enough to hold it all together. It's got to be comprehensive enough to make sense out of all the various issues, relationships, or whatever. And I propose to you this morning that Christ is the one and only sufficient center. That's what Paul is saying. He is the only sufficient center, which means by immediate implication that you are not. You are not. And I don't want to press this too far, but just let me say, we would do a great deal of good to ourselves and to our families and the others we come in contact with if we just understood that. We're not there. We're not sufficient for the task. And if you, if you could grasp that, it would change the way you deal with your wife and the way your wife deals with you. It would deal with the way you deal with your children. It would affect it. You know, yes, God gives us kids. We have, they're a great blessing of God, and they tend to reorient our lives to where they seem like the center. But if you let your kids think they're the center of the world, you're heading for trouble. Okay, they need to know their proper place. They have a place, maybe that place is near the hub, <laughs> but only Christ belongs in the middle. And it affects how we see things, how we relate to people, and how we act. Now, The bottom line there is, is that life was not meant to be believed or meant to be lived independent of our Creator. And in fact, life is not lived independent of your Creator. You might live in rebellion against Him, but you don't live independent of Him whether you acknowledge it or not. And that's what I would tell an atheist. On top of that, I'd tell him God doesn't believe in atheists either, so <laughs> there isn't one. We are all made with a religious, spiritual, ingredient to us, and we deny that to our peril. Okay, So, life was not meant to be lived independent of our Creator, and in fact, can't be, whether we acknowledge Him or not. We are dependent creatures, and we only truly live rightly, rightly related to Him. And His place is the first place. Now, believer, those of you who are believers, you can take great joy in this. You should look at this passage. You should see the glories of the person, the position, and God's purpose for Christ. You ought to look at what he has done, past tense, what he is doing, because as the God-man, he is the sufficient mediator between you and God. He is sufficient to reconcile. Do you realize, look at the cross and how drastic that was. That gives you an idea of what your separation was, because the remedy... It took to reconcile you to God. And Christ is sufficient to reconcile you, to fix the problem. There are probably some here today who do not know Christ in this way, have not dealt with these issues, have not looked to him. And you think, maybe you think you can live life okay. And you're one that needs to hear that this is not all there is. And you need to reckon with that. But maybe you're someone here whose life does not work and you know it. And you have not turned to Christ. You know, you can keep searching for something to put in the center. But you're not going to find anything that's going to work like Christ.
And Christ says that any, all who come to him have life and have it to the full. They have an abundance of life. That doesn't mean everything's beer and Skittles here. <laughs> okay, because for the believer, sometimes life is even harder. But once you include all of life in that and you realize what Christ has done to make things right, you'll find out that he is sufficient in the center. Now, when my boys were young, we wanted to teach them some of these first things. And I'm not good at breaking things down to making them simple enough to understand while retaining their meaning. Okay, and that's a danger. Sometimes we try to simplify things so much that that we soften them. We take some of the ingredients out. Well, we came across a video by a guy who called himself the Donut Man, you know, which I was grateful for. And actually, I myself began to enjoy because we heard it so much and the songs were kind of catchy. Um, and I'm not going to sing you the theme song, but I will tell you that his, his theme song was, Life Without Jesus is Like a Donut, because there's a hole in the middle of your heart. Okay, And Jesus is like the donut hole, and it fits just right. Now, that may be simplistic, but I'll bet you remember it. It is nothing more, by the way, than Augustinian theology, who, speaking to God, said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. There's a hole in your heart. God has solved the problem. You must look to Jesus. You must trust in him. You must look by faith and receive this reconciliation that God has wrought. Consider, if you will, first things, things of first importance. Let's pray. Father, it never seems like enough. I pray that you would apply your word to our hearts. Encourage those who need it. Strengthen those who feel weak. And Lord, draw to yourself, uh, your people. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.